Happy Tuesday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Today is primary election day in some states across the country, places like Michigan, Arizona, and Missouri, where voters are heading to the polls to decide which brand of crazy they want to embrace, uh, also Washington State. Interestingly enough, in Missouri, the former president of the United States apparently could not make up his mind And instead of endorsing one or other of the various deplorable candidates running for U.S. Senate, he decided just to endorse all of the Eric's, even though there are multiple Eric's in the race. A reminder that Donald Trump is basically a troll (laughs) who is not going to be playing necessarily a constructive role. Look, this is the first podcast of the month of August. And I am old enough to remember when August was considered the dog days uh, and the news cycle would kind of take a breather. But I don't know that that's been true, at least for the past six or seven years. So, of course, we wake up today um, with, you know, another al-Qaeda leader biting the dust. Uh, President Biden announcing that yesterday. Nancy Pelosi apparently heading to Taiwan amid a great deal of saber rattling. Uh, We had a federal judge in New York sentence a leading capital rioter to seven years in prison. And of course, because I guess we were caught in this endless political groundhog day, we are waiting to hear from the sphinx-like Kirsten Cinema on whether or not she's going to be supporting this bill that is, as Joe Manchin assures us, not build back better. Meanwhile, we're waiting on the Department of Justice. This is going to be waiting for a very, very long time, I suspect. Uh, to decide uh, whether or not Donald Trump is going to be held criminally liable for any of his various criminal conspiracies. Uh, In my newsletter this morning, I suggest that whatever Merrick Garland does, he shouldn't worry too much about the political blowback, because whatever he does, it's going to be intense. So he might as well go big, given the fact that even minor charges are going to be pouring kerosene on the political bonfires out there, to use that overused metaphor. So you might as well at least you know, plant the flag and say, all right, you know, the president uh, and the former president is not above the law. But I do think we ought to be honest with ourselves that when these charges come down, they are going to be incendiary. And as divided as our country is, this will make it more divided and the blowback will be emotional and um, perhaps even violent. And again, I don't think we should be any, in any denial about that. Now, I personally think that it's, it's, uh, it is necessary that the refusal to charge the president or hold him accountable um, would set a dangerous precedent. But we live in dangerous times, which is why it is very appropriate that we are joined by today's guest, Rachel Kleinfeld, who is senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who focuses on troubled democracies facing issues such as polarized populations, violence, corruption, and poor governance, including right here. So uh, first of all, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Rachel. And and I guess this is probably not going to be our cheeriest conversation of the week. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. And, you know, I want to level set a little bit that well, America is having a lot of problems and we have a trajectory that's not good compared to uh, what one would want to see in a strong democracy. We're not in the level of violence of many countries that I study, right. places like sure. Kenya, Colombia in the 2000s and so on. There's plenty of time to get better. And so part of what I'm trying to do is warn people of the trajectory we're on, let people know that this is really serious 
and have time to turn the ship around. Yeah, but it, you're right. It's also, you know, a good time to take a deep breath and go, okay, we're, we're not Nigeria, Lebanon, Colombia. We're not, we're not at, at that point right now. But what I find interesting in your work is that you identify these warning signs. And so you wrote out this really compelling piece for just security where you talk about this militia problem and you research violence and democracy around the world. And you've been studying this party linked militia group phenomenon for years. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? You know, what's happened in other countries and, and, and the warning signs that it sends up when a political party begins to play footsie with armed militias? So that's a, that's a good metaphor. And sure, what we see in, in many, many democracies is that when the stakes are really high and they believe that they can win through violence or intimidation and um, can win a lot, whether that lot is control of a government that's very corrupt and has a lot of spoils, as in other countries I study, or whether a lot is just a great deal of power, as in the United States, the incentives for using violence and intimidation shoot up. And that's the situation we're in in America. The kind of system we have doesn't help. Um, America's uh, winner-takes-all system, where if you win 50% of the votes plus one, you get the whole district, mm -hmm. as opposed to a proportional representation system, where if you get 30% of the vote, you get 30% mm -hmm. of the seats. We know that our winner-take-all system globally is the most prone to violence. America doesn't build these systems overseas anymore because they're so prone to violence. But we've got it here. And it's worked in the past um, with some problems that I'm happy to talk about. Yeah. But what we're seeing now is that the stakes are really high. We haven't had a Congress that's in play every election the way we have lately since Reconstruction. Hmm. And when you have a Congress like that, you know, it used to be the Democrats would have Congress for 80 years. Republicans would have it for 60 years. There'd be changes on the margin, but one party really held power and the other party had to go along. It hasn't been like that for a number of years now. And as the stakes get higher, the incentives to, you know, uh, cut around the edges grows. And what we're seeing is now states are starting to welcome some militias into local parties usually, but occasionally as in Nevada and Florida, it looks like they're starting to infiltrate state parties, sometimes with the support of a faction of the kind of Trumpist Republican Party that's trying to get rid of and purge the party of just conservatives who are not willing to use violence or other anti-democratic means to win. So you describe how in other countries you've had politicians who effectively outsourced violence to practitioners of the craft, like sort of like a politician might hire a firm to do robocalls. So they're, they're, they're doing this. Are you saying that that's actually happening at some local levels? Not, I'm not talking about just social media. I mean, what is the nexus between some of these political parties and and militias? And when we're talking about militias, we're talking about not not just, you know, social clubs, but but people who are armed, who train, who do things. I mean, what is actually happening in real time at the local level? Right. So we're seeing some really troubling warning signs. It started with uh, branches of the Republican Party, the Portland branch, the Republican Party, Colorado County that had a GOP vote to hire militias for security. So instead of providing their own security or asking the police for security, they started to hire militias. And the Trump campaign did similar things. Sometimes they hired them and sometimes as volunteers, the Oath Keepers would show up constantly at Trump campaign events to offer security. So we're seeing that now at, at the local level. Then we've started seeing various local GOPs that are um, welcoming militias in other ways. So for instance, in Michigan's Grand Traverse County, um, 
which is up north, uh, the uh, someone asked the um, local city council to denounce the Proud Boys after the insurrection, given the Proud Boys' major yeah. role in the insurrection. And instead, the county commissioner stepped off screen. It was a Zoom meeting because it was during COVID, returns with his rifle and didn't denounce the Proud Boys. And the Proud Boys uh, purportedly actually submitted an amendment to that county commission about Second Amendment gun rights and so on. So a real show of support for the Proud Boys. In Texas, we saw the same thing. Alan West, who was chair of the Republican Party at the time, offered an oath to swear in militia members during a Stop the Steal rally uh, right after the election, posed with militia members right after January 6th, posed with the head of the Oath Keepers militia in March after he'd been indicted. So we're seeing this sort of thing. But frankly, the most troubling things that I'm seeing are at the state level where we're seeing one faction, this Trumpist faction, the Republican Party, appearing to try to purge another faction of the Republicans using militias. So it's confusing mm-hmm. what's happening in Arizona, but that looks like it's happening there. And I can talk about that more. Yeah. At the state level seat. Now, normally you'd be able to or we would be able to say these are are, are random fringe developments that were, you know, cherry picking things, you know, that there's, there's always going to be crazy. There's always going to be a little pocket of crazy. But the problem here is that you also have the top down. You, you, it, you know, so much of this emanates from Donald Trump's flirtation with militias. And, and as you wrote before January 6th. Trump had been flirting with the militias for some time. So talk to me a little bit about that, because I don't know how you tell this story without the the without the the central reality being that Donald Trump has created a permission structure to welcome these militias into what used to be the mainstream of the Republican Party. So talk to me a little bit about the flirtation between Donald Trump and militias. So that's exactly right. We've always seen, you know, for years and years, we've seen one state legislature in uh, Oregon or Washington state or something who flirted with white nationalists or Aryan nation. That sort of thing's been going on a long time. It was singular. And usually those people would get ousted from the party when they got discovered or indicted. What changed with Trump was that he started uh, welcoming these militias. They would originally show up as volunteers at his events and and act as toughs, things that we see, frankly, in in sort of fascist marches where he would would yell something about the press and then the toughs would go and get some member of the press and throw them out of the rally, you know, and then he would applaud them from the stage. So that kind of behavior was given permission and was egged on. And then what we saw was that when he would find other groups that had the whiff of violence about them, bikers for Trump, for instance, was a biker group, wasn't a violent group per se, but people were willing to engage in physical behavior at rallies. Trump would love that, and he would call them out from the stage and really egg them on. And so whether it was Oath Keepers, which it looks like Roger Stone, his ally, had um, an actual relationship with, uh, Roger Stone used, used them for private security for himself, Um, or whether it was these groups of various forms of thuggery, Proud Boys and so on, who Trump would call out and applaud, whether from the presidential debate stage, as with Proud Boys, or from his campaign stage. He welcomed them, he normalized them, and he gave them a place in the party. And because Trump was a winning leader, other Republicans followed his lead. And also, they looked at this, whatever you know, Trump was intending, just leaving that aside for a moment, they saw this all as a green light, as an endorsement, as permission. And they used this to uh, recruit people and to 
provide themselves with a certain sort of legitimacy. Well, you know, why do we show up on, on January 6th at the Capitol? Because the president invited us. The president wanted us to come. So this has emboldened them in a way that we haven't seen for decades, really. At least that's, that's right. Feels, that's yeah. right. And we're seeing it in the numbers. The 2020 election was a real inflection point that led to a step change in, in the acceptance of violence as a political tool, um, particularly among Republicans. And you can see that in the data. There's been academics surveying America every few months on beliefs about political violence uh, since 2017. And you just see this, these numbers skyrocket at, during the election. They go up and down with the political cycle before that. So they rise during the 2016 election, they dive, they go up at 2018, they dive, they go up during Trump's impeachment, but then they just skyrocket during the November election. And you start seeing not just people justifying violence, especially people who feel very close to the Republican Party, who most justify violence on that side. Um, it's a different structure on the left. But you also start seeing people showing up armed to rallies. Armed rallies are more than six times more likely to break out into violence. So showing up armed as, as illegal militias at rallies is a real problem. And we started to see threats against members of Congress sky, skyrocket. They jumped tenfold during Trump's presidency. White nationalism, all sorts of things. Well, and as you as you mentioned, you know, very specifically, you know, many of the the threats that we've we've learned about. I mean, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger receiving death threats you know, after he was declared an enemy of the people. And as you point out, out-of-state Oath Keepers showed up at his house. Same thing with Rusty Bowers in Arizona who testified and who uh, may lose his primary election today. He testified that militia groups showed up at his house while his daughter was lying inside dying from a long illness. And I, I can't get past this fact that, that the Oath Keepers are wearing all-access passes when they escorted Roger Stone. <laughs> you know, on January 5th at the Supreme Court, you know, and then Stone seemed to be using members of that militia as his personal security detail on January 6th. So these people were, they were flying awfully close to the flame. That's right. And this is not new. One of the reasons I'm trying to raise the alarm is that America's been on a trajectory that we see in other countries. It's a really clear trajectory of how political violence normalizes and mainstreams. And these groups are the vanguards. So what we're seeing is the mainstream acceptance of violence by a broader and broader part of the American right. The left, it's a little different. We're seeing it among a disaffected part of the left um, who are least close to the Democratic Party. On the right, it's those most close to the Republican Party. And it's growing in normalization. So when we look at political violence globally, we expect to see a certain demographic because all over the world, the people who commit violence, whether criminal or political, are young men generally unmarried, without kids, without jobs. They're kind of disorganized people with aggressive personalities. And that's what you expect to see. What we're seeing in America is political violence, stop the steel rallies, January 6th, where it's crawling into people in their 30s and 40s who are married, who have kids, who have jobs, often white collar jobs. And that's a different demographic. That suggests that they see violence as part of their political expression, not as a criminal act. And that is extraordinarily dangerous because far more people will commit violence if they are normal people in order to protect their values and their community than will commit it aggressively and offensively. And we're starting to see people think of it as a defensive political act. Right. And they think of themselves as patriots, right? I mean, the three percenters, the three percent is historically inaccurately, 
a reference to the fact that only 3% of Americans engaged in the American Revolution, right? The Oath Keepers believe that they are protecting American values. They think of themselves as not as rioters, but as Minutemen a la 1776. I mean, they, they have surrounded themselves with that sort of we are patriots. We are the ones upholding the concept. I mean, that's that's the story they tell themselves, right? It's not violence just for the sake of violence. They think that they are now the, you know, the, the, the blue line that protects America and God from the rabid leftist hordes. That's exactly right. And the reason it so worries someone like me looking at not just the numbers, but the structure of this violence is that internationally, aggressive people commit violence. It's a personality trait. But you can get non-aggressive people, just regular people, to commit violence if they think they're being defensive of things they care about, their kids, their family, their community, their values. And now, as you're saying, we're seeing this uh, ideology move into the mainstream. And so what you have now is a large number of Americans, a couple million based on the numbers that we're seeing, who are willing to commit violence, who aren't part of groups. And then you're seeing these militias, and the militias act kind of like agents provocateurs. Like you said, uh, politicians can hire them the way they hire robocallers. They can get something started, and then that provides permission for regular people who wouldn't throw the first punch to follow along behind. Okay, so let's talk about how this is playing out in a place like Wisconsin, this debate. What would happen if I went to the local uh, coffee shop and began talking about what you and I are talking about. I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here because I, I, I know what the argument is. You know, here in Wisconsin, you know, our politics are dominated by obviously inflation, but also the issue of crime, very, very specifically tied to what happened in Kenosha last year. So when the conversations about political violence come up, we often get the whataboutism uh, the response, well, okay, so we have these guys over here, but th this is self-defense as opposed to what about the violence of the Black Lives Matter protesters, the rioters who burned down Kenosha, caused $50 million in damage. Here in Wisconsin, as you know, we have a young man, boy, uh, with a gun who killed uh, three people during those disturbances, and he is considered to be a rock star among members of the right. So they cast this in the, we are not the ones who are the violent threats. There is this other violent threat and we are responding to that. So I think the left needs to acknowledge that property violence is violence and it's real. The, the BLM protests were almost entirely peaceful, mm. but almost entirely is not entirely. And about 5% of them, depending on the numbers you look at, were not peaceful, and people who were uh, not real protesters but looters joined in, and they caused possibly more than $2 billion of damage. And that yeah. damage is real, and those are real private property owners and small business owners that are hurt. And if the left could acknowledge that, it would be a good thing, because it would allow them to then say, look, $2 billion in property damage is a bad thing, and we also need to draw the line at violence of all sorts, including violence against people. What we know is that for years, and back to the 70s, when most of the terrorist violence was on the left and was quite high on the left, violence on the left tends to be against property and violence on the right tends to be against people. Hmm. And so they're just, they're just different structures. Uh, police know this and deal with it differently as well. And um, the left needs to acknowledge the kind of violence that its side tends to commit more frequently. 
So you've written extensively about how other countries have descended into violence. And you also told The Washington Post recently, reminded us that political violence is often preceded by a dehumanization phase. Where are we along that continuum? So we're further than I would like to be, a lot further than I'd like to be. We've seen this dehumanization phase everywhere from you know, major instances of, say, genocide, the Nazis famously would call Jews Burman and uh, Rwandan genocide, where they would refer to um, Tutsis as, as bugs and things like that. But Serbia did it as well. And then we see it in more minor instances of, you know, singular, I shouldn't say minor, but less genocidal and more singular instances of violence, for instance, racism or what's called hostility toward women. There's an index that measures hostility toward women and misogyny Hmm. that follows a lot of mass shootings that we know are very highly linked to that index. And actually hostility toward women is the most highly linked sign or variable of political violence as well. So we see this kind of dehumanization in many ways. In America, what we're seeing is racism and misogyny growing. We're seeing far more hate crimes, um, not quite at the levels that they hit right after 9-11 when there were a lot of hate crimes against people that were seen to be Muslim, but almost at that level, and they've been rising for five years. What we're also seeing is this growth in in language like groomers, pedophiles, calling Democrats and elites uh, groomers. That is a type of dehumanization that's extraordinarily dangerous because what dehumanization does is two things. It tells people that these individuals are less than human, and so you don't have to think about hurting them the way you'd think about hurting a person. You think about hurting them the way you think about hurting an ant, Mm -hmm. and also that they're a threat. And so you up the threat, and you reduce the sense that you're hurting a fellow human, and that reduces the inhibitions that most normal people have to violence. So language like groomers that says these people are a threat to your children and they're not even fully human. I mean, what is a groomer? It's like a hairstyling tool um, and also a pedophile. It's it's just a, a word that dehumanizes. Incredibly dangerous. Well, and it also obviously legitimizes any act of violence. If somebody is molesting children, then who's going to have any sympathy about an act of violence committed against them? How concerned are you about this sort of development within the ranks of the military and law enforcement? So they're different questions. Let me take each one, one by one. I've worked with the military for many years. I ran an organization for a decade that worked with uh, 80,000 Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, and I have immense respect for our military and its professionalism. And the professionalism of our military is extremely good at dealing with this problem and rooting it out. And they last year passed some new doctrine to deal with expressions of white nationalism and other kind of malicious sympathies within the military. So that's good. The bad thing is that they needed to because groups like the Oath Keepers are actively playing on the desire of people in the military to serve, people who took an oath, and trying to recruit them. So they know they have this problem with veterans who want to serve. And there's research from Afghanistan veterans who feel very angry about how our country left Afghanistan. And I will say I share those feelings who feel very angry about it, who feel betrayed by their political leaders and by their generals and are sort of ripe for recruitment into extremist causes. Another group in the military that's causing trouble is the National Guard, which falls under state leadership. That guard is being politicized. If you look at the number of guardsmen who wouldn't get vaccines, even after being told to by the 
federal government, which calls up the guard, almost half of the guards served overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're given, I think, 18 or 19 other vaccines, you know, against anthrax, all sorts of things to make sure that they're mission ready. Um, but this vaccine they're objecting to, it's a real politicization. And in certain states, the adjutant generals who run the National Guard were fired in order to find someone political enough to refuse the federal government's order. So I worry about those parts of the military. The police, there's 18,000 police forces across our country. Most of those forces want to serve their people and they come from their people. But 2020 radicalized police, you know, they saw the left wanting to defund them, really pushing against them, and they saw the right welcoming them. And so we're seeing among police, but particularly among sheriffs who are elected, a, a sense that the that the right is their party. We've never seen that before. It used to be police were conservative, but not ideological, not partisan. Um, but now they seem to be moving partisan in their campaign donations and so on. And the sheriffs, there's a whole group called the Constitutional Sheriffs Association. Right. I wanted to ask you about them because this has become a thing now where this is sort of like the armed wing of the MAGA world, you know, elected officials who have made it very clear that they will resist the federal government. Um, they, they might you know, try to criminalize uh, some of the, the electoral issues that we're dealing with. I mean, this is, it feels like within the last four years has emerged into a, a major force. Yeah. So the Constitutional Sheriff's Association, it actually came out of a philosophy of white nationalism that started in the Midwest during the farm failures in the 80s. This particular form of white nationalism that was against Jewish bankers started in the Midwest and it grew into this idea of sovereign citizens, that people didn't have to pay their taxes, that people could um, sort of rally against the federal government and attach themselves to other parts of government. And within sheriffs, it took the form of this idea that sheriffs were directly elected by the people and so they could directly interpret the Constitution. There's no hmm. historical basis. They, they lead it back to England um, and the king. Uh, but in fact, the king appointed sheriffs, so it's quite hmm. the opposite back then. Anyhow, uh, it, it was a movement that kind of rose and fell with the farm crisis and trundled along. And then Joe Arpaio, the sheriff that Trump pardoned, uh, became president of the Constitutional Sheriffs Association. And what a lot of people don't realize was not only was Arpaio very racist and pretty brutal to the prisoners under his command, because sheriffs controlled jails, among other things, but when Trump pardoned him, it was seen by the constitutional sheriffs, this whole movement, as a pardon for them, as as an um, incentive for them to kind of spread their wings. And so what we saw in 2018, when a lot of Democrats got elected at the state level and uh, tried to pass gun protection bills of one sort or another, was that the constitutional sheriffs just caught on fire. And they grew and grew and grew. And they declared all these Second Amendment sanctuaries where they wouldn't enforce the the law that the state governments were, were trying to enforce. Um, and since then, they've gotten very political. So they've lined up with True the Vote and have been trying lately to bring cases, fraud cases and so on, against elected officials claiming that they can directly interpret the Constitution. In most states, that's extremely erroneous. It's also sometimes illegal. And attorney generals are trying to push back but, you know, sheriffs are seen as um, heroes in a lot of the West and uh, in some other places where sheriffs have a lot of power. And so it's hard from a messaging perspective to push back on. Them. Well, and also they have that certain inherent legitimacy that people are are conditioned to respect the fact that they are the sheriff. This is they have the uniform. Uh, they also have uh, the guns. 
So one of the points that you made that I thought was really interesting was asking the question, well, why would you know, a, faction, a faction of Republicans ally themselves with, with, these, uh, with these militia groups? And, and you point out, well, because the reality is violence and intimidation are already bolstering their power. And you tell the story of, you know, retiring Congressman Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio voted to impeach Trump. And he decided not to seek reelection after his wife and young children were threatened. Um, um, after you know, some Republicans supported the bipartisan infrastructure bill, Marjorie Taylor Greene publicized their phone numbers. A bunch of them received threats. Uh, Representative Peter Meyer of Michigan also, who's you know, on the ballot uh, t- today, um, wrote about a colleague who voted against certifying the election because of threats to his family. So, I mean, this has now become part of the reality of our politics, that you have politicians who are intimidated, who are frightened, who either fall silent or actually leave the political stage because of the threat of violence. That's exactly right. And, you know, you're talking about the federal level, but let me bring it down to people's neighbors, because one of the places that we're seeing the worst levels of intimidation is actually school board, local public health officials and mayors, upwards of 85 percent of mayors are are reporting threats. Uh, Women get more than men. Minority women get the most. Um, But when you look at these local political positions that um, often don't bring a lot of glory or money, especially in small towns, you're starting to see a large number of people say, we're just not going to run. Why should a mom run for school board to improve her kids' schools if what she gets is armed people showing up at her house and scaring her young children? You know, that's the reality for a lot of local officials who have no protection. They're barely being paid for a lot of these positions. So let's put this in the political context. Just about every survey that I've seen would suggest that trust right now, trust in American institutions is at at near historic lows. People just, you know, don't trust the government. They don't trust institutions. This also plays into this, doesn't it? That, That in fact, when you have large numbers of Americans who no longer trust the legitimacy of the institutions, who believe that everything is rigged and corrupt, this would obviously feed the kind of alienation that leads to what you're describing. That's right. I talk about trust uh, as society's immune system. Trust lets you yeah. fight off invaders, whether they're domestic <laughs> or, or foreign, and keep them out of your body politic. And when you lose trust, you lose that ability to, to unite and fight back. And what we're seeing in America is this, uh, you know, there's that old, I can't remember who did it, one of our founding fathers held a bunch of sticks together and tried to break them, and they're hard to break all together, but if you pull them out one by one, they're easy to break. That's where America is right now. We're being pulled out one by one, and it's easy to break, and a lot of that has to do with the loss of trust. Our country's at extremely low levels, and this is something that both sides bear credit for. After Watergate and after the Vietnam War, the left started to really uh, lose trust in institutions for decent reasons. Uh, Watergate was a major crime and the Vietnam War was a big mistake, but they started to lose trust and really um, cause a loss of trust to trickle down through their children. And then on the right with Newt Gingrich and the revolution against government, a sort of constant railing against government has caused a loss of trust on the right. And where it's brought us to is a bunch of sticks not standing together, uh, being able to be broken. Well, and also there's been the failures of the institutions over over time to actually deal with problems. You know, the Iraq war, obviously, you know, people look at the elites and they say, okay, well, you know, these are the best and brightest. These are the elites. This is the establishment. And look what they have done. And it's been disastrous. And therefore, it becomes easier for someone to come in and say, let's burn it all down. 
because of that rhetoric of burning it all down is, is now become very, very common in American politics, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. It's not just uh, made up. There's pretty good reasons right. to lose trust. And that makes it even harder to say, well, we should you know, trust. But the trust doesn't need to be blind, nor does it need to only be upward. You can have trust in your fellow American citizens. Um, most surveys yeah. measure both. They measure trust in, in fellow Americans and in governments. And unfortunately, those two are highly correlated. If you lose trust in government, people lose trust in their fellow citizens all over the world because government acts almost like parents. You know, I have two young kids and they, when they're fighting, they look to me to make things equal and fair. <laughs> and government works kind of the same way. If you can trust that government uh, upholds the rule of law and will treat people fairly according to law, people can get along. When they stop trusting government to do that, you see dives in trust among uh, fellow citizens because there's no one to play referee. So this seems to be crucial to me that that and, and see what you think about this because I'm I'm, I'm freelancing here <laughs> that the loss of faith in one another is actually more serious even than the loss of faith in government that you know the way you describe it because once Americans distrust one another once we begin to think of our fellow Americans as enemies that is the 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 moment at which we're going to turn on one another so it, it's in the way you describe it the failure of government then leads to the failure of of Americans to trust one another. And I think that that's more serious because I think that right now in the mood where we think of ourselves not as fellow Americans, but as enemies and patriots, et cetera. And, and that's a dangerous formula. Distrust with one another, even worse than distrust in institutions. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Because they're so highly correlated, it's, it's hard to separate. Right. But I, I agree with you that that distrust for one another is ultimately uh, more destructive to to how a country can function. And um, but you, you can't get that trust in one another without some trust in government is what I'm right. what we've seen overseas. And unfortunately, one of the problems is the chattering class of which we are both a part. But, you know, when you look at surveys of polarization and so on, the people who most misunderstand the other side are highly educated media seeking people who seek out media on politics of the left followed very closely behind by highly educated people who seek out news on politics of the right those are the people who most misunderstand the other side the people who really don't watch much media who could care less about politics who are more middle of the road they have a much better understanding of the reality of the other side than the people setting the tone so let's talk about the January 6th hearings. You have said that they should showcase the threat of violence. And I know you uh, told the Washington Post that you thought the committee needs to show how the GOP is using organized militias. Are, are you, do you think that they've done that so far? What are you looking for? So I wish they'd done a little more, to be honest. You know, that particular hearing was supposed to be the whole hearing on the militias and the violence. And then they got a last minute uh, Hail Mary from the White House general counsel that he was willing to testify. And so that changed the, the hearing and they took uh, the first hour for that. That was very important. So I don't uh, I don't disagree with that choice, but it meant that their time to look at the violence got cut in half. And unfortunately, that meant that they focused mostly on the violence from Trump and the violence in the past on January 6th. And they didn't look at how this has played into the future and how it's still affecting our country. So you also, in this piece that I mentioned before, the piece that you wrote for Just Security, you also focus on the co-conspirators in the schemes to thwart the Democratic choice for president. 
remain in power. And so who are you talking about? Um, Andy Biggs, um, Trump, Ron Johnson. Who are these co-conspirators? That's right. Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, there were a whole series of people who asked for pardons from Trump ahead of time before he left office, fearful that that what they did was illegal. You know, I always followed the Washington Post test in my career. If, if you didn't want what you did to be on the front page of the Washington <laughs> Post, you shouldn't do it. Yeah. Um, these folks apparently did not follow that test. And so they were asking for pardons for whatever they did. And we're still finding that out. But they're in power. And some of them, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, have already won their primaries. Others are winning. And then there's about 100 more uh, Trumpist Republicans who've won their primaries. As you said, Rusty Bowers is being primaried today and might might lose. Um, and these are people who might have helped at the state level, or they might be Johnny-come-latelys who are just picking up on the uh, ideology, the willingness to use violence, the willingness to break democratic laws or norms. Um, you know, people like Eric Greitens, who ran an ad about shooting Republicans in name only and targeting them because there was no bag or tag limit. You know, this kind of thing is um, either a co-conspirator because they were actually in Congress on January 6th and helped the president in some way with his schemes to illegally overturn the election, or they're picking up on his ideology and they're spreading the violence deeper into the body politic. So yesterday, a federal judge sentenced one of the leading capital rioters to seven years in prison, um, which is the, you know, significantly longer than any given so far uh, to any of the more than 800 people arrested in connection with the, the riot. What is your sense? What impact is this having on the militia movement? Is it emboldening them by feeling that they are political martyrs? Are, are some of them looking at what's happening to people like uh, like Guy Reffitt, who got the seven years in prison and going, wow, maybe I had to rethink my life choices? What What is happening? How is this affecting? So, you know, as I said before, you've got the militias and then you have this violence that's getting normalized among just regular people who don't belong to any group. And I think what we're seeing is that these convictions are um, altering the leadership structure of some of the militias. Oath Keepers leader is in jail. Um, others might feel angry at Donald Trump for not pardoning them or not helping them out or not declaring the Insurrection Act, which is what many of them wanted to have happen. Um, so there's some anger and some dissent. And also Q has been very silent in the last couple of years. And Q led a part of the sort of Christian nationalist militia effort. That, that we haven't talked about so much. So the militias are um, are different based on who they are. The Proud Boys is still going strong, and the Proud Boys we've seen in the last few years glom on to everyday conservative causes, anti-CRT bills, school board issues, things like that, to grow their memberships. So they would show up at these rallies at local levels and um, really take over. We've also seen uh, the militias cooperate with each other more and more. Mm. That seems to have started January 6th, but that's really unusual. And it's a really bad sign, I should add. Usually these militias internationally, they're fighting for members. Um, so they're actually often at odds with one another, trying to steal the membership of each other. When they cooperate, it means they've got plenty of members. They're not worried about losing people and they're, they're willing to, to grow. And, and that's what we're seeing. So you've written the events of January 6th are not past, they are prelude. So what happens next? How optimistic are you about what the next four, five, six years looks like? So we are in a very delicate situation right now. Basically, 
there needs to be accountability for people willing to use violence to affect the democratic sphere. Otherwise, you cannot have a functioning democracy. You know, India has militias tied to political parties. Iraq has militias tied to political parties. Sicily used to have the mafia tied to a political party. This is, it's really common in a lot of countries. And what it bodes is that your democratic politics stops working. America, by the way, used to have militias that were tied to political parties in um, the Know Nothing Party in the 1850s. But also people forget the Jim Crow South had the Southern Democrats as kind of a one-party controlled uh, group that ran 11 states. Republicans could not win in the Jim Crow South. And the Ku Klux Klan was lightly connected in that um, violence would be unleashed every few years, especially after the massive resistance campaign after Brown v. Board, um, to uphold the rule of the Southern Democrats as a one-party one town kind of place. So we've got a history of this, and we could see it again. And where we are in America is a little close for comfort for me. How important is it that Merrick Garland's Justice Department bring criminal charges against Donald Trump? So I've changed my own position on this. About nine months ago, I wrote a whole tweet thread in response to a colleague who had said that Trump should be imprisoned. And I said, look, it just absolutely shouldn't happen. In other countries where right. leaders are imprisoned, you see a tit for tat that goes back and forth and it just becomes highly politicized. But that was before all of the evidence was known about what Trump has done. And I think at this point, if you don't bring criminal charges against someone who uh, really led a mob, called a mob into Washington, D.C. to overturn an election because every other scheme, both legal like his court cases and illegal like the fake electors schemes, failed. Um, and so he made a last ditch effort to call in violence and then knowingly did not call off that violence for hours, even to the threat of his own vice president. I don't see how you can't prosecute someone mm -hmm. who did that. Otherwise, you're making a mockery of the rule of law. You can't have a king in America who's above the law. But I'll tell you, it'll be dangerous. And right. what we really need is a bipartisan, cross-partisan group of people who respect the rule of law saying, look, we're behind this. Because otherwise... It'll just become partisan. Rachel Kleinfeld's most recent book is A Savage Order, How the World's Deadliest Countries Can Forge a Path to Security. Rachel, thank you so much for your time this morning coming on the Bulwark Podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.